in springtime By the heron pine ducks waddling side by side The busy towns are bustling with what man has made a man Will you come, meet me there in spring Will you come, meet me there in springtime Where gold sun through sweet magnolia shine Hello and welcome to episode 1511 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller of ESPN. Hello, Sam. Hello. I am back from vacation. Thanks to you and Meg for shouldering the load while I was away. I enjoyed listening to you both, although I was sorry to miss talking to Alex Spear and Grant Brisby. That is a primo preview episode. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, two of our regulars. Oof. So today we are bringing you another couple good guests. One is Aaron Gleeman, who will be talking to us about the Twins. Then we'll be talking to Jason Mackey about the Pittsburgh Pirates. Then I will be bringing you a quick conversation I had with Pirates pitcher Mitch Keller, whom I wrote about last week for The Ringer. He and I discussed what it was like to have a 475 BABIP, an unprecedentedly high BABIP as a rookie last year. Thought it was an interesting conversation, so we will append that to the end of the Pirates preview. One quick thing I noticed, I tried to be on vacation while I was on vacation, only answered a couple listener emails while I was away, but I did see a tweet by Rhett Bollinger, who used to be the Twins beat writer, is now the Angels beat writer, and he just tweeted Mike Trout's career spring training stats, and he didn't present it as a fun fact, there was no unusual construction, no exclamation point or anything, he just said the stats, so I wasn't sure whether he was saying, this is impressive, this isn't impressive, and I wanted to get your thoughts on whether this is what you would expect Mike Trout to be. I don't know whether you saw this. I or whether did not you see know. this. No. Okay, I, so I, so what would you guess? So Mike Trout has had a, a career 443 at bats in spring training. And of course, he is a 1,000 career OPS hitter during the regular season. So what would you expect in spring training? Hmm. Hmm. I can't. <laughs> it's a tough one because it's like the questions that we sometimes ask about what would Trout hit in, you know, a ball or college or whatever. And, and spring training is, you know, it's like, I don't know, some intermediate point between AAA and, and major league level probably. And we're talking about, what, two thirds of a full season here, more actually. So, yeah, it's tricky because it is kind of two hypotheticals. It would be like, what would Mike Trout hit if he was playing against you know uh, AAA level average competition and sometimes lower and in elevation and before pitchers are are ready to throw I mean hitters right. they, they famously say hitters get ready before the pitchers do versus the hypothetical what would Mike Trout hit if he just didn't care at all <laughs> yeah then again some of the pitchers don't care either some of them are fighting for roster spots but some are like Mike Trout veterans yeah. who, don't who cares have to... in a matchup in a matchup that that is just for pride who cares more mike trout for like to protect his sort of because mike trout obviously goes into every encounter he has in baseball as like the dominant player like yeah. every matchup he's ever had he's the better one mm -hmm. and so in one sense he might be territorial right like he's the alpha and he's gonna like fend off any challenger like he's got to win every encounter because he is the dominant combatant on the other hand you know, since none of this matters. On the other hand, maybe the uh, this is like the chance for 
Tom Kohler to say to his grandkids, I got my trout out, you know, like it doesn't matter to the grandkids. Like this is your chance to dominate Mike Trout. Every chance is in the regular season. It is too, but you'll take any win you can. And so it might be like, well, sure. Most of my spring training outing is just tuning up and finding my change up and, you know, facing a bunch of busters. But then here comes Mike Trout. I'm going to take that one seriously. So who Mm -hmm. cares more between Mike Trout and Tom Kohler? And I'm guessing it's Tom Kohler who actually plays in a different spring training (laughs) side of the coast. So in fact, uh, they don't face. I'm going to say that Mike Trout's career line, I don't have a great logical progression here, but I'm going to say his career line is 279 batting average, 445 on base, 515 slug. So that's actually a good deal worse than his actual regular season line, right? Uh, it's a good deal worse he's for career, his slugging percentage. It's yeah, a, he's a 305, 419, 581 hitter. Right. I gave him more on-base percentage and less of the two that require swinging. Right. Okay. Well, he's actually been significantly better as a spring training hitter than a regular season hitter. So he is a 352 career hitter in spring training, which uh, that probably sounds more impressive than the rest. He's 352, 437, 650. So basically, I guess he's his usual self with a higher batting average, more or less. So he has a 1,087 OPS in spring training versus 1,000 during the regular season. With 26 homers in 443 at-bats and 26 steals, 7 caught stealing. Worth pointing out, though, that 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 includes spring trainings before he was a major leaguer. So that would include the the, uh, flu-addled spring training of 2012 that got him sent down to the minors, as well as the 19-year-old spring training before he became uh, a major leaguer probably did not he probably was not in major league camp in 2010 age 18 2010 he was actually for four games and seven at bats and uh he hit 571 2011 he was there for 29 at bats and had a 639 ops so he was not mike trout yet and then 2012 when as he mentioned he was sick he only had six at bats and, and didn't do well in them so yes that's true although that's uh it doesn't amount to a big portion of the sample when i saw this at first i thought wow 352 that's really impressive because he's a 301 career hitter or 305 and that seemed like oh yeah he's definitely playing against lower level competition and he's his usual self and i think that's partially true so yeah he is facing rookies and minor leaguers and scrubs who he doesn't usually see and he's teeing off on them but then again a lot of those guys probably will come in late in games and he's not getting four plate appearances a game in spring training because he's played 175 career spring training games and he only has uh, what 443 at bats so often he's taken two or three at bats and he's out of the game which means he might not be beating up on the worst pitchers on the stage. But on the other hand, he doesn't necessarily get the times through the order benefit either, which would tend to depress his stats because he's not seeing the same pitcher in the game three or four times. And so when you factor in that that is probably deflating his numbers, I think it actually is pretty impressive. Then again, as you mentioned, the hitters ahead of the pitchers thing and Max Markey in an article for BP several years ago, I think very convincingly demonstrated that the hitters are ahead of the pitchers, even when the season starts. If you account for the temperature, which makes a major difference, scoring is actually higher earlier in the season. So that would imply that pitchers are not quite at the same point that the hitters are. And that's probably particularly true in March when they're just really ramping up. So 
I don't know if this is, it's not really a fun fact. I don't know whether it's what I would have expected or kind of disappointing. I guess it's better than you did expect, but it's not really superhuman either. Yeah, to be clear, though, I was not really predicting Mike Trout's stats. I was trying to gauge the tone of your voice. (laughs) I was trying to find the tenor of the fun fact that you had described (laughs) only with splotchy descriptions. right. Okay. All right. So let's get to our previews now. And sometimes these teams align in sort of a, a serendipitous way where I think thematically they pair well together, even though we're doing it based on projections and going from the middle out. Sometimes they do kind of line up nicely. And now we have the Twins and the Pirates, I think two teams that you could say the Twins are kind of at the forefront of a lot of the changes in recent years in the game. And the Pirates have maybe fallen behind or, or been victims of those changes. And Of course, the Pirates just hired the Twins bench coach as their manager, so I think there will be a clear contrast in these two segments. But let's start with the Twins. So we are joined now by our pal Aaron Gleeman, who covers the Twins now for The Athletic and also podcasts and radios about them on the Gleeman and the Geek Show. Aaron, welcome back. Hey, boys. How's it going? All right. I'm going to start with a personal question, if that's okay. It's not really a personal question. It's more of a personal professional question. But you've been writing about the Twins in some capacity now for 18 years, is it, since 2002? And now you're doing it as a beat guy, at least part of the time. And you've been in spring training this year. You've been talking to the players. You've been doing beat writer type stories. And that's very different from the way you started out at your own website where you were blogging from afar. And I wonder how much of a change that's been for you to go from outsider to insider as far as covering the twins goes and what the pluses and minuses are and whether there's been a learning curve. Well, I have to preface it by saying I've done the beat writing job for, I think, 11 days so far. <laughs> right. So. so any tremendous insight that I put forth, uh, you know, <laughs> might be, I'm, I took a break and now I'm back uh, in Fort Myers to do it for another 10 days. So it's possible <laughs> yeah. I will just have a completely different experience this time. And so everything that I'm about to say will be canceled out, but really feeling the grind already. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> it, I, but I've, uh, I've enjoyed it. I mean, I, I've had some access with twins people we've done some events with them where i interview people and stuff but yeah this was my first real experience you know going into the clubhouse every morning and it was a little nerve-wracking just because i really truly had no idea what to do but by like you know the third or fourth day or something like that you realize yeah this is relatively normal it's a little weird but uh everyone i've tried to talk to has been very open and willing to talk to me and answer the nerdy questions that i've been asking them it's been uh it's been fun and yeah like i mean like you said i've been doing this for a long time writing about the twins and i sort of view it as i'm not going to try to just you know do game stories and that but the ability to be working on a story and to actually go into the clubhouse and ask someone you know why are you throwing your slider more or what do you attribute this improvement to i feel like can really add to a story which you know i realize is insight that is nothing new to you guys Yeah, and also during the time that you've been writing and talking about the Twins, they've gone from sort of an old-fashioned organization under the Terry Ryan regime and the Ron Gardenhire era and even into the Paul Molitor era, and now they're kind of this cutting-edge organization that's at the forefront of a lot of trends in baseball, and I don't know to what degree you are still 
rooting for the team as opposed to covering the team. But I wonder what that transition has been like, because when you started, you could kind of be the person who was on the sidelines and maybe knew some things that the twins didn't or weren't really paying attention to. And you could point some things out and say, this is what the twins should be doing. And here's what they're not doing that all these other teams are doing. And so you don't really have that lane anymore, I guess. But on the other hand, you also get to see a test case of a team that really remade itself and has obviously benefited from it. And I guess that opens up a lot of opportunities for a new type of story. Yeah. What I mean, if there was a time when I knew more than the twins, that is completely gone <laughs> at this point. That is apparent with every, not only coaching staff member or front office staffer that I talked to, but the players themselves now, they're coming into a system now that they go to rookie ball and they're, you know, dealing with technology that the previous regime just never had any use for. And they know, like the the Twins have a catching prospect named Ryan Jeffers, who was a physics major at UNC Wilmington, and he's working on his pitch framing with all sorts of tech that they have. And I asked him about it, and about halfway through the interview, I realized his level of knowledge of this stuff is so far beyond my level of knowledge, and I'm supposed to be doing the nerdy stat head analytics stuff for a living. And so... It's, uh, I guess, sort of humbling, but yeah, it is It is nice to be able to ask questions of people and to know that they know what you're talking about. And also just, you know, from a quasi-fan perspective, I have a lot more faith in the decision-making of this group than the previous group, although it should be noted that, you know, the previous group did have a pretty good decade uh, before having a yes. pretty bad decade. So let's talk about the Twins. I uh, Last year, they won 101 games, which is one win off their franchise record. It was a fantastic season. And then they went to the postseason, and they got swept by the Yankees, which is what they do, uh, what they've done. It's the continuity that, <laughs> that this yes. organization is known yes. for. <laughs> uh, and I'm just curious. I think that after that, partly because, you know, they were the Twins, they snuck up on the baseball world to some degree. Partly maybe because their rotation was, you know, it, not not a particularly famous or like all that successful rotation uh, last year. And, and partly because we're looking at this after the fact, after the sweep. But it sort of feels like the Twins are not considered or were, last year's Twins were not considered to be on the same level as the 107 win Astros or the 103 win Yankees, even though they won 101 wins. And I'm curious, from your perspective, did it feel going into that? I mean, obviously anything can happen in the postseason. But did did you feel going into that series like this was a team that, as constructed, had a really realistic and equal shot of knocking off those two super teams and maybe even those three if they got to face the Dodgers in the World Series? Uh, or did it sort of feel like they were playing above their heads all year and that there was something kind of like not quite convincing to you? I mean, I, I, I was convinced by them, but I do think for all those teams that you mentioned, there was a little bit of like win inflation last year or the last few years, really, just because there's so many non-competitive teams. And so, yeah, they won 101 games, I think probably in a normal season from the past 25 years, it was a 96 win team or something. But the problem, even setting aside the Yankees history, which is tough to do, but the Yankees won more games and the Yankees hit one fewer homer than the twins. Uh, and the Yankees had more star power and home field advantage and, and all that stuff. So I, I didn't view them as, you know, this is the year they're definitely going to knock out the Yankees, but it was the most legit tw twins team that I've seen 
ever since the World Series teams. But yeah, I do think you know what you said about them sneaking up on people sort of loomed over everything where it was like, well, they're a year or two years early on arriving to this level. Uh, so I think the loss to the Yankees was in part people just going, oh, here we go again. This, like you said, is is what happens every year. This is the story that plays out. But also I feel like it was a slightly less of a stomach punch just because no one expected the Twins to be in that position last year to begin with. Okay, so now since uh, that this is a preview podcast, that actually was just a prologue to my actual question, which is then they go into this offseason and they, they sign Josh Donaldson, they acquire Kenta Maeda, and those two moves kind of really give this team a, a lot stronger, more robust look throughout their, their, their depth chart, I guess. And I'm a little surprised that we're not talking more about the Twins as being one of the winners of the offseason. They have uh, now, I mean, I, I, arguably their worst position is left field, where they have a left fielder who finished 18th in MVP voting last year, and their rotation is a little bit more secure. They, they have three credible pitchers at the top, and their bullpen kind of came together last year and was stronger at the end of the year than at the beginning, and and then you know they were a young team, and so now the same question: Do you feel like now they are really you know at the level of the super teams? Is there any is there anything particularly differentiating them from from the Yankees right now in your mind? I mean, I definitely view them as this is a year they should do it, and I think even like uh, doofuses like me asking questions of Rocco Baldelli every day while I was here the first time in spring training. It's all about expectations and how this year is different. And I sort of, having watched for so many years the Garden Hire Terry Ryan regime downplay all that stuff, and they were always trying to be the little engine that could and, and that. And Baldelli basically said, yeah, the goal is the World Series. Like, you don't win 101 games, sign Josh Donaldson, and then say we're hoping to maybe compete for a division title. So I think the depth of this team is absurd to me like you said eddie rosario is the weak spot and he batted cleanup and he drove in 110 runs last year the rotation they didn't sign a clear-cut top of the rotation starter which everyone wanted but i think maeda is a lot closer to that than people give him credit for generally and then just in terms of overall impact donaldson is as good as any starter you were going to sign this offseason anyway so i mean they might not win 102 games just because wins might be a little tougher to come by uh, the division is more competitive top to bottom, I think. But uh, this is, I think there's a decent argument that this is on paper, at least heading into a season, the best Twins team maybe since like 1965. So Matt Trueblood wrote this in his BP annual essay about the Twins. A great many things we long believed to be fixed, but largely unknowable have turned out to be knowable, but highly fluid from the aerodynamic properties of the baseball to a player's individual talent level to the interaction factors that make up a winning clubhouse that set the game on its ear and forced teams to adopt new philosophies based on a crucial premise. You have to work relentlessly to get ahead, but once there, you can't stop for even a moment. As teams prepare for 2020, the Twins exemplify that better than any other team. So I wanted to ask about this whole player development makeover that the Twins have had, a new coaching staff, and a lot of that coaching staff departed this offseason, which we can also talk about. But so many players improved last year. So many players seem to get closer to their potential. And this is sort of a retrospective question, but also a forward-looking question, because I'm wondering, well, should we expect those guys to regress at all? Should we expect this team to continue to have that talent? So you've observed this whole make 
takeover from afar and now close up. So tell us a little bit about how much you believe that the Twins have really turned into a player development powerhouse and whether that means we should expect the guys who took steps forward last season to stay there and maybe other guys who haven't yet taken those steps to take them now. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely Mitch Garver is not going to slug, you know, <laughs> 650 again. Uh, I'm trying to think of who else there were. I mean, there, there were Nelson Cruz is not going to have the best season of his career again at 39. Uh, there are definitely regression candidates. I think their hope is that by replacing basically CJ Crone with Josh Donaldson, that cancels out some of the coming regression. But in bigger picture, I mean, I've been impressed at every level, like the, the coaching hires they've made and then basically a second round of coaching hires because all of them got poached by other teams for bigger mm-hmm. roles uh, almost immediately. But their ability to sort of dip into whether it's college or independent baseball coaching ranks and find guys who the people who actually know about this stuff, uh, which I'm not included in that group, but they they rave about the Twins' ability to sort of identify guys who have been superstars in in niche roles places and then actually convince them to leave the organizations they're with to come with the twins and you know i think they've done a really good job it seems like of truly making it a top-down kind of streamlined the flow of information that everybody is on the same page a prospect in single a is going through the same uh tech and coaching and all that stuff that they will get uh, when they're actually in the majors. And I think that was a huge uh, issue with the previous regime and even a little bit of an issue the first year or two of this regime when Paul Molitor was the manager. I think they had the same ability to come up with different uh, ideas and coaching and different data that they wanted to get to the players, but it sort of ran into a wall for whatever reason before it, it truly got to them. So, I mean, I think Will they turn another player into Mitch Garver or have Luisa Rise 2.0 hit 330 again? I don't know. But like I think Twins fans should be very confident that I guess the, the biggest picture level is that they know what they're doing. Right. So this is not the team now that trades Ryan Presley to Houston and Presley finds a higher gear. This is the team that, in theory, Presley comes to them and, and they're the ones who unlock his potential. And so they hire Rocco Baldelli. They put this whole coaching staff in place to make this kind of conduit system between the front office and the field. And it seems to work really well. And they are widely admired around baseball. And then you get to keep that group together for one season, seemingly. Yeah before everyone else just poaches all your people, which must be flattering, but also somewhat frustrating. So can you lay out all the people who went elsewhere this offseason and what the Twins have done to replace them and whether that is a concern or, or whether once you set up that sort of foundation, you can kind of plug and play with the individuals involved? Well, okay. So they lost, let me try to see if I can even get this right. They lost the bench coach, Derek Shelton, is now the Pirates manager. Mm-hmm. Their hitting coach, James Rousen, is now the uh, bench coach slash offensive coordinator with the Miami Marlins. Their assistant pitching coach, Jeremy Hefner, is now the pitching coach uh, with the Mets. And then one that I think sort of flies under the radar a little bit is uh, their catching coordinator, uh, a guy named Tanner Swanson, that they found, I don't want to say from obscurity, but he was not a known guy. And, and worked wonders last offseason with Mitch Garver uh, to turn him from a huge minus into a above-average defender, got poached immediately by the Yankees, who put him on their Major League staff. And I think mm-hmm. those are the four biggest ones. One of the, the big sort of question marks, I think, is 
to what extent was James Rousen, the hitting coach, responsible for all those breakouts? Or was he merely sort of one important cog in the entire system that they right. built up? So, And they also lost the, the organizational hitting coordinator, who I guess was working with the minor leaguers and went right. to the Red Sox staff. So, so they've, they now have co-hitting coaches where the assistant hitting coach from last year, uh, Rudy Hernandez, got promoted. And then uh, Edgar Varela, who had been working in the minors, is the other co-hitting coordinator. And so there's some continuity because Varela worked with everybody in the minors and Hernandez worked with everybody along with Rousen last year. But it's it's hard to get like a cut and dried answer from anybody just in terms of what was the actual impact of Rousen. Because if these breakouts are largely due to Rousen's great coaching, then that's a huge worry. But I don't know. I mean, we're, we're going to have to find out. I think Hefner is an example of what we were just talking about, which is they hired him as a scout. Uh, he had just recently retired as a pitcher. Uh, they put him in a front office role. They put him in a scouting role. They put him. They basically made him the bullpen coach and and termed it assistant pitching coach. And then one year later, he's hired to become a, a pitching coach at age I think thirty four. Uh, and so that's an example of like they made a great hire. They put a guy in a role that maybe people wouldn't have projected for, and then what they get for that is to lose him to a team that offered him more money and a bigger role. But I think they're they're relatively confident that it's not so much about the individual hires, but sort of their taste in who they're looking for for these jobs and their ability to sort of pitch guys on, come join this organization. It's a really good place to be. Well, the other thing that was new last year was the baseball. And it's, I mean, the baseball affects every player who's playing every pitcher and every hitter and the twins more than any other team and a bunch of twins hitters more than almost any other hitters had a ton of power last year and in a lot of cases really unexpected power and again this is like a worldwide phenomenon that theoretically affects all the players but doesn't necessarily affect all the players equally depending on style do you have any i don't know if if anybody has looked at this i don't know if you've looked at this or if you just have a gut sense of like if the ball went back to 2015 levels overnight or even 2018 levels overnight, do you have any sense of whether it would affect the Twins more than it would affect an average team? Is it something that keeps you up at night? I mean, I think it's hard to say, but I, I do think like, you know, the the higher percentage of your offense is coming from homers. Obviously, the fewer homers are hit, it's worse for you than other teams. Although, like I still think no matter if they go back to, you know, nineteen sixty eight environment, the ability to hit the ball further and harder is always gonna be good. But yeah, I do think there's some danger. Like I would certainly take the under on the twins hitting three hundred plus homers again. Uh I mean, regardless of the ball, but certainly if we think the ball is gonna be different. But I do think the one area of optimism for that, if the ball is different and the home run environment is suppressed a little bit, is that they replaced basically Jonathan Scope and CJ Crone, who were sort of all or nothing, huge portion of their value came from the ability to just hit home runs. And they replaced one with Josh Donaldson, who, you know, hits home runs, but also draws 100 walks, MVP caliber player. And then Luis Arise, who might hit four home runs in a season, but they're hoping, you know, I think Pakoda and Zips both projected them to win the AL batting title this year. So I think they have diversified the, the, stylistic nature of the lineup more than last year but yeah i mean uh mitch garver i think i've mentioned him like eight times already in this but i think you know the the ball has a lot to do with it i'm convinced that his approach at the plate is legitimately much much better than it was previously and he's 
that his breakout is for real. But yes, I mean, he put up crazy, crazy numbers in the best possible environment for someone like him to put up those numbers. And so, yeah, I think it's it's a team-wide worry, but I think their their pitching is better this year, their, their depth is better this year, and they've gone away from quite as many uh, homer-fueled guys in the lineup. So I think we all expected that if the Twins were going to take that leap and if players on the Twins were going to break out, Byron Buxton would be one of them. And that wasn't really that big a part of last season's success. Uh, He was pretty good when he was on the field, but he missed about half the season. And I'm curious now, is it almost like, well, it's gravy if Byron Buxton actually turns out to be good, or is the team still really counting on him? And is it realistic to count on him? I think from a lineup point of view, it is sort of gravy. Like if healthy, he'll bat ninth. I mean, he's just, it's deserved, even if he hits like he did last year. Uh, And they have guys who could replace him in the lineup and be similar, if not better. But it's a huge change for them defensively. Like when, when not only is Buxton, I think the best defensive center fielder in baseball, but when he's absent from the lineup, they generally shift Max Kepler, who's a great right fielder, but he's just sort of an average center fielder. And then they end up putting Jake Cave or Marwin Gonzalez or somebody like that in right field. And the the defense in the outfield goes from being great to being sort of average or even below average. So I think that's the, the biggest impact. I thought Buxton was their MVP in the first half last year. He was slugging 500 something. He was leading the league in doubles, great defense. And then he runs into a wall in Miami and basically misses... Uh, the entire last two plus months and he's not on the field he hasn't played in a game yet this spring I think they're hoping later this week or early next week he'll be back in the lineup to make his spring debut but he had a partially torn labrum in his shoulder that they uh, had surgically uh, repaired so I mean he's a he's a question mark for opening day but yeah I do get the sense that like his importance to the team and their ability to like win the division is sort of viewed as a little bit of an afterthought, but maybe he's still viewed as the kind of luxury item that could push them over the top if he's healthy. Yeah, I mean, gravy, he, he might be gravy, but um, I mean, I don't know. Let me think. Is there a way? I'm trying to. <laughs> is there another no, kind of topping? That you no, can... I'm trying to figure out a way to segue gravy into a into a coherent sentence. Uh, sometimes you expect gravy on a meal, you know, like if, it, if it's meatloaf uh, or like turkey. If it's turkey, yeah, it's not like gravy is not like gravy is a bonus for some meals, but gravy is expected. At Thanksgiving. Uh, what I'm saying to you is that Byron Buxton Nailed after it. last year, I wonder how much you do count on it. Like you personally count on it because like you say, you know, for half the season, he was really under the radar. Like, I don't know if he was under the radar because he was batting ninth or if because it was doubles instead of, of homers or what. But to get a list of players who had doubles in a higher rate of their at-bats than him, this is the list all time. Earl Webb, who set the record in doubles in a season, Triz Speaker once, Joey Votto once, Larry Walker once, and a man named Jocko in 1889, Jocko <laughs> Milligan did it. Otherwise, nobody else has ever doubled so frequently as him. And, um, you know, there's there's that old thing that we always used to say or that, that people in baseball have said forever, which is that when those doubles turn into home runs, who boy, look out. Do you have a sense that those doubles are going to turn into home runs? And is... Byron Buxton still like a plausible answer to who will lead the majors in war over the next 10 years. 
Uh, I do want to confirm that I, I expect gravy on Thanksgiving, A, <laughs> number one. Uh, I mean, I think he has shown like 20, 25 homer power. Like he's capable of hitting upper deck homers. Well, and uh, I mean, everybody in baseball who has ever hit 10 homers has shown they're capable of 25 or 30 that's homer true. power. I mean, there are times where he takes a swing and you think, oh, he's still capable of 40 home run power. Right. I think I do think, though, a lot of those doubles last year were extremely hard hit, pulled balls into the left field corner. And I'm not smart enough to say whether elevating that so that it travels a little further and a little higher to be a home run is is a doable thing. But I think if they could get him to a point where he's, you know, 15, 20 homers and and 40 plus doubles and obviously, you know, 30, 40 steals, he doesn't really have to develop further from what he was in the first half, which is the real shame of the injury. I mean, he's had injuries before that have derailed his development, but usually he's been struggling at the time or he hasn't really put it together. He put it together for, for three months. He was great. And so that was the sort of crushing aspect is he was finally the guy that people like me have been hyping up endlessly for like, seems like 20 years at this point. Uh, and then it all comes to a halt because he you know, can't help himself going 100% after every fly ball, which is something they've also tried to sort of work with him on. Uh, he's, gonna, he's positioned now deeper in the outfield with the idea being that he won't have his n- enough square footage to build up ahead of steam and, so that if he crashes into the wall now, he will be traveling slower when he does because they figured out that just asking him not to crash into a wall is not really uh, feasible for whatever reason. So they've now just tried to make it so he's going slower when he does crash into a wall. So to answer your longer question, I've you know I think it's fair to drop the the expectations for him and the ceiling for him, but I still think his ceiling is a lot higher than I think uh, people probably give him credit for at this point. You mentioned Luis Arise, and maybe because I had already given my heart to a different Venezuelan high-contact multi-position yeah. <laughs> player on the Twins, I sort of missed Luis Arise when he first arrived, but he did call attention to himself, and he had really impressive at-bats, and he's only 22 still, and as you noted, the projections really like him. So according to the Fangraph's depth charts, which combine the Zips and Steamer projection systems, Arise has the highest projected batting average in the major league by seven points, which is pretty impressive, even though it doesn't go with a ton of power. So tell us a little bit about the non-Astatio high-contact hitter on the Twins and how good could he be? He is a little bit like, they, as if like they were working on this player type in a lab <laughs> and the prototype that they came up with was Astadio and people were like, yeah, that's good, but let's uh, let's work on this a little bit more. Because he's like, he's like 5'8", and he's stocky, but, you know, for a second baseman, as opposed to Astadio, who just for a human mm-hmm. is stocky. And he has Astadio's contact skills, basically, but also he's like one of the most patient hitters I've ever seen, which is the exact opposite of, of Astadio. And so, you know, I don't, I tend to kind of try to downplay the idea that a 23-year-old is a true talent, you know, 320 hitter or something like that, just because I think that people overestimate how many of those guys exist uh, at a given time. But I mean, when you're, when you're drawing more walks than you strike out and you're basically only swinging at good pitches and then your ability to just sort of line the ball 
Uh, I mean, there were points last season where he would talk about how he would see a shift in front of him and then he would decide as a 22-year-old rookie, well, I'll just now hit it down the other line to go away from it. And people here talk about how there's a sort of Rod Carew aspect to that where he would like sort of step out of the box, assess where the defense was positioned, and then just decide to like hit it three feet beyond where the closest guy was on whichever side he wanted. And maybe that's a little bit overblown, but I do think like he does have a unique ability. Part of me says, well, this time last year, nobody would have ever bet on that. He was at double A. He only got called up uh, because he, they had needed an injury fill in. But on the other hand, like there was no aspect of his statistical performance that really stood out as being a fluke. And so I think seeing the projection systems kind of agree with that makes me want to double down on him a little bit. But yeah, I mean, I think he's not a great defender at second base. He's not particularly fast. I think he might become like a six to 10 homer guy with a fair number of doubles, but he needs to hit 290, 300 plus to have big time value. But yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think he can do it. So we've talked a lot about the hitters and no surprise there, the Twins power got a ton of attention and that is returning this year, but they did have some real successes on the pitching staff too under Wes Johnson and guys like Tyler Duffy and Trevor May kind of unlocked something and another pitcher who did was Jake Odorizzi, although in his case, maybe he sort of unlocked himself more so than the Twins unlocked him, but I think the Twins offseason and their starting rotation would look a lot different without Jake Odorizzi in it coming off the season he had and it seems like he really kind of did the twins a favor by accepting the qualifying offer which he and jose abreu were the only ones to accept and abreu then got that extension and odorizzi coming off the season he had and given what some of the other pitchers got this offseason one would think that he really could have cashed in if he had wanted to so do you think he misread the market there or was he just so happy with the twins that he wanted to stay or is there something we're overlooking uh, he was i think he was definitely scared of finding himself in a i don't know a dallas keuchel situation again mm-hmm. and i think that's fair given the the previous two off seasons because players like him sort of a second tier very good but not elite free agent with the qualifying offer i mean a lot of those guys had had trouble even finding decent contracts and so at the time heading into the offseason basically i i didn't blame him for for making that choice i think it, it was great from the twins point of view obviously uh and i think if he had it to do over given complete knowledge of how this offseason actually played out he certainly wouldn't have taken it i mean i think he would have been able to get i don't know three times that much money at least on the on the open market but yeah he i mean he's been asked about that and his whole thing is I loved being there with the twins. They were, they helped me reach this level that I'm even talking about getting a huge contract and I'll do it again this year. And then I'll hit the open market without the qualifying offer and and get paid, which is what you're supposed to say, obviously. But yeah, I mean, I think if the previous two off seasons, they may just stand out like in the history of baseball as just complete outliers. And so it's hard for me to blame a player or even his agent for kind of misreading that a little bit. So tell us about the Twins thinking behind the Gratterall for Maeda exchange. Obviously, there were a lot of questions about Gratterall. The Red Sox decided they didn't like him as much as they initially thought they did. The Dodgers said, okay, we'll take him. So how much did that reflect wanting to win now and needing a starter and thinking Maeda could handle that role? And how much did it reflect uncertainty or concern about Gratterall? I think once the Twins, and it was such weird timing, because like, 
there was Twins Fest, which everybody's in town, all the reporters are in town, and they announced basically during that that he was going to be in the bullpen to begin the year, uh, probably in the Major League bullpen, which is a change from there had been a lot of assumptions that, okay, he pitched well in the bullpen in September, but he'll go back to AAA to continue working as a starter. So they say basically, uh, no, he's going to be a reliever. We think that's where he's best. And then a week after that, uh, the trade happens, which is such odd timing to me. So I think it's, they definitely had a huge amount of skepticism about his ability to not only hold up physically with the starters workload, but also just his secondary stuff beyond the the fastball slider working long-term as a starter. I think they believed he could be a good starter, but I don't know that they thought he could be a great starter or at least a great starter for 180 innings a year, year after year. And so once they viewed him as a reliever, uh, they've had so much success. You named a few of them earlier, converting former starters or scrap heap guys to late inning relievers that I feel like even if you view him as a tremendously promising reliever prospect, which I think is fair to view him as, they thought, well, we can trade him for a playoff caliber starter right now. And then the other thing is Maeda, A, I think is probably underrated looking at his just uh, raw totals in LA. But beyond that, four years of team control with a guarantee of $3 million a year plus bonuses for a team like the Twins was huge. They basically could get a number two or number three starter for, I don't know, 60 million less than they would have had to pay over the course of four years. And so I think that played into it too. All right. So we always wrap up with a projection and you've already said that this might be the most talented Twins team to start a season, which doesn't necessarily mean that they'll win more games than any previous Twins team. But how many wins do you foresee? Has anybody on all the the years you guys have done this predicted more than 101 wins for any team going into the season? Lindsay Adler uh, yeah, last year last with, with the, the Yankees, Yankees. And, and she was she, right. <laughs> yeah, she was right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm not going to do that because I'm not brave <laughs> enough to do that. Uh, she's smarter than me. I'm going to say they will win uh, 97 games and they will relatively easily uh, win the division title. And uh, perhaps most importantly, they will avoid playing the Yankees in the first round of the playoffs. <laughs> okay, that's crucial. And will the effectively wild singularity occur? Will Rich Hill at some point this season throw to Williams Estadio? Uh, by the way, Rich Hill, <laughs> Yeah. for a somebody who is pretending to be a beat reporter for a while, me, uh-huh. uh, amazing. Yeah. I went up to him and I hear, you know, uh, whether it's I, basically anybody who talks to him talks about how amazing he is. So I was... Uh, a little bit cautious, but he was like, yeah, what do you want to talk about? We can talk about anything. And just the calmest sort of yeah. uh, dad vibe energy <laughs> right. that I've ever seen. And so now I'm I'm hoping he makes it back healthy just because I think he can really help the twins. But also I want him hanging around the team in the clubhouse so that I can just yeah. sort of use him as my, my cop-out uh, interview at all times. Yes, right. Well, Astadio was on your most recent projection with Dan Hayes of the twins opening day roster, right? It seems like if anyone would benefit from the 26th roster spot it might be Astadio and I don't know whether he'll catch enough and Hill will pitch enough for the two to overlap as a battery but I hope that happens at some point if that happens you guys have to have me back on the show so we can just discuss the whole thing at length <laughs> okay well there's a there's another effectively wild twins connection which is that uh, I don't know if Ben has mentioned this on the podcast elsewhere but uh, yes. uh, Takashi Miyoshi 
who was the Stompers' second-half manager, mm-hmm. uh, is now the manager of the Gulf Coast League Twins. So Yoshi is, uh, you know, very famously, <laughs> among a very small part of the world, uh, famously dreams of being the first Japanese-born major league manager. He uh, is completely confident that he is going to get there, and this is his first uh, managing job. Uh, he had been a coach in the system, and now he's going to be a manager. So can we get your prediction for uh, wins for the Gulf Coast League Twins? <laughs> I mean, clearly they'll win the whatever title they can win in that, but I think going back to what we talked about at the beginning, I would say he's got like decent odds of being on like a major league coaching staff within the next like two years, given the, the promotions that all the coaching hires have gotten from the Twins. So, I mean, I would continue to um, hitch your wagon to him uh, because I, I he'll probably be like a manager in the National League or something within two years. That'd be very exciting, especially given the hurdle he had to overcome of, of being a manager for us. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I didn't mean to ask another question, but that just made me think because we were talking about all these very visible player development successes at the major league level and i don't pay as close attention to the minor league level but has that been mirrored at that level has that apparent ability to get more out of players at the highest level also filtered down to low levels or is it too soon to tell i mean i i think so although yeah ultimately the fact that like they've got a guy at double a who's performing above expectations doesn't mean anything until he actually makes it to the majors, so it's tough to say. But, I mean, they've definitely had a series of, you know, non-first-round draft picks and even some some trade pickups that they got where at the time they were viewed as like a C-plus prospect who now are projected to be kind of major league regulars. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's weird to talk about like a farm system being promising of a 101-win team, but I think that combination is uh, part of why even someone who tends to downplay these things is willing to say like it's the, the best time to be a Twins fan, certainly in my lifetime. All right, you can find Aaron on Twitter at Aaron Gleeman. You can read him at The Athletic, where he will be bringing you tidbits from the Twins Clubhouse in his new role as part-time beat writer. And you can, of course, hear him on the radio if you get KFAN and also on the podcast, Gleeman and the Geek. Thank you, as always, Aaron. Thank you, guys. Anytime. All right, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Jason Mackey to discuss the Pittsburgh Pirates, followed by a conversation with Pirates pitcher Mitch Keller. Joined by Jason Mackey, who is the Pirates beat writer for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Hey, Jason, how's it going? Uh, it's going great, guys. How are you? We're doing all right. So the Pirates had an eventful offseason in some ways and a very uneventful offseason in other ways. Let's start with the eventful ways. So Pirates really cleaned house between the end of last season and now Ray Searage is gone. Clint Hurdle is gone. Bench coach Tom Prince is gone. Team president Frank Coonley is gone. And 
longtime GM Neil Huntington is also gone. So tell us what led to those decisions and also the timing of those decisions was kind of curious with Hurdle being dismissed just before game 162 and then Huntington being let go on October 28th, which was quite late. I don't know if that hampered the Pirates' search for replacements, but it was unusual maybe to decide to do it then. So what contributed to this house cleaning and the timing of it all? Yeah, I'll try to recap as as much as I can. As from what I understand, Bob Nutting he said that firing Clint Hurdle was the easy decision. They knew that they had to go in a different direction, and I don't think there's anybody around the Pirates that second guesses that decision. I do understand the timing was funky. Um, they did it before Game 162 because they felt like Clint should have a chance to talk to his team beforehand. Their hope was that Clint would manage the final game of the season. He chose not to. Um, they told him after he met with reporters before, you know, they, they took the field, you know, that was the easy move. And then along came the hard stuff, I guess you could say. And, and as best I understand it, um, they really wanted Travis Williams, who was formerly in management with the Pittsburgh Penguins. I believe he was the chief financial officer, but oversaw a lot of different things. And, you know, he's thought very, very highly of in Pittsburgh and they wanted to, to make sure they could get him. And I, I think it was kind of mutual with Frank Coonley. Um, the Pirates didn't necessarily want to bring him back. I'm not sure Frank wanted to come back under the, you know, the direction the Pirates wanted to go. It just, it was, it was time. And so uh, Travis, they, they needed to make sure that they had an opportunity to get him and get him locked in. So uh, you, you kind of saw them twisting in the wind a little bit. They got Travis. Once that happened, they were comfortable firing Neil Huntington and they knew they wanted to search for a general manager. At that point, you saw Ben Sherrington brought in and, and he was very high on Travis's list, obviously. I know Travis did some research with people in, in Boston and around baseball and he was kind of new to hockey, but um, I'm I'm somewhat new to baseball, having covered the Penguins previously, and have known Travis for quite a few years. And so, you know, he he did his due diligence and found a guy that had a reputation for building a farm system, something the Pirates sorely needed. And then that sort of led to Derek Shelton, somebody they interviewed the first time around. They really liked him, and um, it just so happened that that Ben was comfortable with him as the manager as well. And everything we've seen thus far with the the culture that Derek Shelton has created taking stuff that you know i think I, I'm, I'm careful saying this because i don't want to sit here and bag on clint hurdle because i think clint did some great things for baseball in the city of pittsburgh i just think it was maybe time with the young team to have a different approach and shelton's different more relaxed approach so far has really resonated with being around the club otherwise look or uh, are there tangible ways that you can tell that this is an organization that is now run by a whole bunch of different people i mean can like if you just were dropped in from you know last year and you didn't see that you know huntington and searage and hurdle and everybody else was gone would you be able to tell that a transformation had happened and and how if the answer is yes (laughs) I think so. And I, I think so because a lot of it is discernible to the naked eye. You know, I know a la- last year they had a lot of meetings and they did a lot of stuff and it was very official and very serious. And, you know, I'm not saying any of that stuff's not important. Maybe it is. But I think the players on that team and how they went about doing this, and that this is something guys talked about earlier in spring training, just got kind of beaten down by it. You know, I don't think they were having a lot of fun playing baseball. Um, and, and you know, they've talked a lot about having a more 
streamlined approach, less eyewash. It's a lot of different ways to spin it, but basically just making sure they're having fun playing baseball, being intentional with their work. And so if you saw the team last year, and I, I did, I was dropped in the middle of it in May, and, and it just wasn't a good atmosphere around the club. It was just, you know, it seemed like a lot of guys were kind of over it. Um, and I don't, you know, I, the best I can explain it is maybe just being tuning out their manager, tuning out the coaching staff and all this stuff. But, you know, also from a, a tech standpoint, Oscar Marine is the, the new pitching coach and he's come in with all kinds of technology, you know, probably stuff that I would imagine is pretty standard around baseball, but the Pirates didn't do a ton of this stuff before. And what they did do, they didn't do a very good job of relating it to players and, and giving it in kind of a digestible way. And so Oscar Marine comes in and, and, you know, whether it's Edutronic stuff or Trackman or Rapsodo, all this, like, you know, there's just an increased presence of that everywhere. Charrington has talked about adding what he calls bandwidth, but basically more analysts, different kind of analysts, um, trying to be a better small market club. And I think that's sort of the disgust that happened with Bob Nutting and others in the organization. Like the Pirates are, you know, they are what they are. They're not going to outspend teams and, you know, it doesn't mean they can't win, but they need to do the small market thing better than they've done. And, you know, so far with this, this group, they've basically drilled down in teams like the Rays and the A's and, you know, even Milwaukee and Minnesota, granted the markets and the budgets are different, but they've done a better job of being a small market team. So speaking of Travis's, we're only five years removed since my MVP machine co-author Travis Sochik published Big Data Baseball about how the Pirates modernized and remade themselves into a successful team. And as recently as maybe four years ago, if, if not even more recently, Ray Searage was still widely regarded as a guru and Pittsburgh was seen as a place where people could go to get better pitchers at least. And that has completely flipped. That perception has changed, and that seemingly led to all the dismissals this offseason because Bob Nutting was very vocal when he fired Neil Huntington about how many players seem to have gone from Pittsburgh to other places and gotten better, and they want to be a place where players can reach their potential without leaving. So... How did we go so quickly from the Pirates seemingly being at the forefront of these things to seemingly being laggards? And I know that you haven't been covering the team the entire time, but were we too optimistic? Were we praising Ray Searage too much back then? Or is it just that the game changed very quickly and the Pirates didn't keep pace? Yeah, I think it's more of the latter than the former. I think Ray Searage was due all of the praise that he got back then. I don't have any issue with it, but... It actually brings up an interesting conversation I had this morning with Tyler Glasnow. Uh, and he talked about how the Pirates, you know, have kind of gotten behind the times. And, you know, at one point in time, you could, you know, pitch inside and pound sinkers and this, that, and the other. And then as, you know, the launch angle era kind of dawned, the Pirates never changed. And I think that in and of itself kind of spoke to the way the former regime did business and they had success and they felt very strongly about how they did things and why they did things. The only problem was that it wasn't working anymore and they needed to change and they, they were never able to change. And whether that was uh, Huntington, Hurdle, Searage, you know, it wasn't 2015 anymore. And they're trying to have guys pitch that way and, you have a Tyler Glass now, and like you don't want him pitching like Jay Happ or, or Francisco Liriano or whatever. Like you need to tailor your pitching plans 
individually. And the Pirates just weren't able to do that. And I was talking to class now about this, and he's saying, like, the amount of data that was put in front of him in Pittsburgh was basically nothing. Um, he wasn't told about the importance of pitching at the top of the strike zone or about, you know, sort of pitching any different way. Like, they just wanted him to pitch the way they wanted their pitchers to pitch, and they were pounding a square peg into a round hole. And, and so I think... You know, it just got to the point where, like, this isn't going to work anymore. We can't factory make pitchers. And, you know, they, they did a great job of that. They exploited something. They found a market weakness, as Travis wrote about it, and, and did it tremendously. But, you know, I think that market weakness kind of disappeared, and then they, they never had a next move. That is, it is all really amazing because, I mean, they were such they were seen as such a new school team at the time. And then, like now, they 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 sort of over the course of a few years became an old school team without realizing. I mean, what you're describing it seems like was so obvious to everybody, everybody except for them. So it it makes me think of that thing that Bill Walsh is at least credited with saying that uh, that a coach or a, a front office should look to move after about ten years. That after about ten years, you should be trying to find a new team, a new environment, a new something. And Theo Epstein, I think, cited that when he left the Red Sox. And I think Matt Trueblood wrote a piece that suggested that, you know, Theo Epstein should take that advice with the Cubs. And it was very controversial when he wrote it. I mean, in as much as uh, the people who read it found it very controversial. And I wonder, like, I'm trying to think of what the lesson is that we're supposed to take from the post-Big Data Baseball Pirates. And if that particular angle of it that you just need to leave after 10 years whether you think it feels right or not is a lesson i mean if it is you can sort of think through other teams in the league and think oh wow are there other teams in the league whose front offices are kind of sitting in this situation and maybe aren't aware that they've become complacent i mean what do you think what is the like if you were writing the harvard business review overview of the pirates last six years like what is the lesson I mean, I would say the big overarching lesson is when you have something good the way the Pirates do, you need to continue to add to it. You know, they did such great things in 13, 14, and 15, and they had their payroll in a certain way, and they had increased their, their market size, and they're winning games, and they're relevant, and they didn't add to that club appropriately. And you can point out all kinds of stuff. I mean, they didn't add to it from a processes standpoint they didn't add to it from an intel standpoint they didn't add to it from a personnel standpoint their farm system probably got worse i would argue it certainly didn't get better a lot of people around here want to talk about money with the pirates and for good reason i I think they should and you know the pirates are spending less now than they were then their payroll went down after they had a really good year and that just doesn't square with some people. So the lesson that I take out of it, and I think this is the lesson that the Pirates are taking out of it too, that, you know, they're going to trust Ben Charrington to grow this thing, you know, organically from from the ground up the way he did sort of with the Red Sox. And, um, you know, granted, there's a bunch of different things. It's not apples to apples, but, you know, once you get this thing back the way it should look and you're more on the cutting edge of things, the Pirates need to heed the lessons of what they did last time and what they didn't do last time. You know, they need to continue to get back. I don't, I don't know if I subscribe to the, like, every 10 years you need to move on. But when you're out of ideas, when you stop changing, when you stop evolving, at that point you need to move on. And for the Pirates, I, you know, I don't know if it was 10 years or close to 10 years or whatever, but they stopped coming up with new ideas. They thought whatever they were doing was just always going to work. And it's not. 
I mean, it's just, I don't know any sport, any scenario where you can just keep doing what you're doing and it's going to continue to work. That doesn't happen. So uh, uh, the Players Association is among those that would like the Pirates to spend more, and they have filed a grievance about the Pirates not spending, um, basically taking revenue sharing money and not investing in the club. This is the second grievance in the last three years. Do you have a sense of whether these grievances mean anything to the front office do they spur action does is this like a big like scary thing to get in the mail or do they just kind of like roll their eyes at it does it do what the associate player association hopes it does i don't think it scares the pirates into spending money differently good bad or indifferent i think the pirates are comfortable with how they appropriate their money um I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying I disagree with it. I would like to see how they spend their money, and I think we could end this conversation very quickly if they would just show people what they're spending their money on. You know, if you believe in it and, and you're doing things by the letter of the law, then just tell people. Say, this is what we're doing. This is where we're putting our money. This is compliant. Shut up. But, like, they're not doing that. Um, but I, I don't think it forces them to change the way they do business. I don't think they're intimidated by it. I think they're annoyed by the fact that it keeps coming up. But I do understand where the Players Association is coming from, because if you don't have access to their books, if you don't have access to the guts of their operation, then yeah, it looks bad. And it also looks bad. Like the grievance on the whole to me is kind of, I, I don't know how I feel about it, because you're saying these teams aren't trying to win when some of them, some of them actually are winning. But when teams like the Pirates aren't spending and you aren't winning, then that's an issue. And people are going to question your motives. And so, you know, you can get away with it if you're winning. But if you're not, then you better be prepared to show people what you're doing and why and why you're compliant. Because otherwise, people only go off of the information they have. And right now, to me, the information that is publicly available throws into question the idea of whether you're trying to win. When you look at their payroll, it does not look great. And if you also look at, you know, some of their practices, and, and Bob Nutting is on record saying this, that they haven't gotten enough out of their Dominican Academy. And you can talk all you want about, oh, we're lumping money into there and we're focusing this, that, and the other. But if it's not yielding anything, people are naturally going to question what you're doing down there. Yeah, so according to Fangraph's roster resource, the Pirates have the lowest projected opening day payroll in baseball now, and you can change all the components, and you can hire a new manager and a pitching coach and even a GM, but if Bob Nutting is still there and Bob Nutting refuses to spend, then you're making it very difficult for those people to put a winner on the field. Perhaps not impossible. The Rays can do it, but it's a tall order. So... Is there really any reason to believe that the Pirates would spend at a certain point that they would ever decide, okay, this is the time that we're actually going to invest in this team? Is there any movement toward extensions for some of the younger players who are around? Basically, is there any reason to think that the Pirates would ever spend given their track record of not spending? I, I Yes, I do. I believe that, and, and I'll try to, my best to explain why. You know, Travis came from, Travis Williams came from, the Penguins, where they spend money. They do everything to the nth degree. They're bumping their heads on the NHL salary cap every year. You know, Ben Charrington came from Boston where they're spending oodles of money. These guys had other offers. They could do other things. Like, And they're not stupid people. Like, I, I find it hard to believe that these guys would come to Pittsburgh, talk to Bob Nutting, investigate the situation, and walk away, you know, not convinced that 
the Pirates are going to spend money. Like, I do think they are going to spend eventually. Is it going to be a $200 million payroll? Probably not. I, I find that hard to believe. But, you know, at the same time, like, once they get the minor league system in better shape, once they get their international stuff in better shape, and, you know, a lot of the processes that we've spent this offseason talking about, I do think they can improve. And I think the on-field product, the major league on-field product, can stand to improve quite a bit in 2020 as well. I think the people who are saying the Pirates are going to lose 100 games and they're going to be so terrible are sort of taking into account, I think, how checked out a lot of guys were last season because of Hurdle, because of the former regime, because of how terribly they prepared pitchers. There's a lot of room to improve. The Pirates were abysmal when it came to fielding the baseball last season. They did not pitch well. They were an okay hitting team with very little power. But I do think they can, you know, with some very – pitch a little bit better, field a little bit better, get some offense. Like, this can be a respectable team. You take that step, and then hopefully you take another one the next year and another one the year after that, and in a couple of years – you know, as these things improve, yeah, I do think they're going to try to spend more money. And, you know, I know from talking to Ben Sherrington, even before they went down to spring training, I remember a phone conversation where, you know, Ben talked about he's kind of had like assurances or, or, you know, he believes that the payroll will, will increase like over time and he'll have the ability to expand his budget. And, you know, if is Bob Nutting lying there? I, I don't think so. And the other thing I come down to with Bob Nutting and the, the spending money, like he can cash out and make a lot of money right now. You see baseball teams selling for an enormous amount of cash. He can go do something else. You know, he's got seven springs. He has newspapers. He has other investments that he can just, you know, if he said, you know what, I don't really care about winning. I just want the money. He can cash out for a nice chunk of change and just call it a day. I do think Bob Nutting wants to win. I just think he's probably a little too cautious in his approach. Um, you know, it's professional sports, right? You got to take some chances. You got to do some stuff that may be stupid on the outside, but it placates your fans. And so, you know, I, I do think if these guys do a better job than the former regime did, that nothing will reciprocate. One last thing about that is uh, the, it's sort of surprising for a team this young to, to see how few extensions or, or how few players they've locked up. They signed Polanco to an extension uh, four years ago, and then Felipe Vasquez was their other extension. And obviously that's a basically a, a, a dead contract now because Vasquez is in jail. It does seem like there are six or seven or eight players on here that you could very easily have seen a uh, you know an extension get hammered out by now. And so that hasn't happened. Do you have a sense of why they haven't been more aggressive signing extensions? And, and this is kind of extension season. Do you have any hunch that like if, if we were talking three or four weeks from now, I would have others on that list? Um, I... In three or four weeks, I would not be surprised if they have a couple of those young guys signed. And I don't have a magic answer for why it hasn't happened now, other than everything that's happened this offseason has been a little slower than expected because of a late start, because of this, that, and the other. But, you know, the, the guys in this conversation that we're talking about, I feel like, you know, Brian Reynolds, Kevin Newman, maybe a Joe Musgrove, um, Josh Bell's obviously going to be the, the big name there. These are the guys the Pirates want to be around long-term. And getting to know these guys, these are guys that want to be around long-term. So I think it's a, only a matter of time, to be perfectly honest with you, at least with those three, that they keep them around. I think there's some other guys, you know, like Mitch Keller would be one, where, you know, you want to see him take a big step this season and, and you know, maybe you try to buy out some time with him. 
you know, I think Bell's the only kind of compromising one just because of him being a Boris client, the possibility that he can play out this year and the next and, and go to free agency and probably make a whole ton of money. The Pirates have not shown a willingness to pony up that kind of cash. But guys like Reynolds, Newman, I mean, these were guys who were, you know, they're minor leaguers last year. They didn't have anything to bank on. And you're going to dangle that kind of money and that kind of assurance in front of them at this point in their careers? Yeah, I think they'd be interested in taking it. And I also think what Derek Shelton has done so far, changing the culture, changing the entire atmosphere around the club, like at least for the guys in camp, I realize it's not like a destination around baseball, but the guys here are genuinely having a good time again. They like what they're doing. And I don't I don't think those guys will balk at the idea of a of a long term extension. I think it's just a matter of getting you know, years and dollars that match. So you mentioned Reynolds and Newman, and those guys took me somewhat by surprise last season. Reynolds, of course, had a, a fourth place rookie of the year finish, and he was not someone who had shown up on top 100 prospect lists, and Newman had, but really not since 2017. And both of those guys had good years. So are they expected to repeat that and remain at that level? Or is the fact that their breakouts were somewhat surprising? a sign that maybe they could come back to earth a bit? I mean, from everything around the Pirates and the people that I've talked to around baseball, I mean, they're they're certainly expected to match those years, if not exceed them this year. I know, you know, Reynolds specifically, they're trying to juice a little bit more power out of him. They think he can run more on the bases. They want him to stay in left field to to get comfortable in one spot. Uh, You know, there was a time where maybe he was thought to be moving to center once they traded Starling Marte, but that's one of the reasons they went and got Gerard Dyson. You know, and and Newman, kind of the same deal. There's some more power there, uh, but just consistency with those guys. And there's no reason in my mind to believe that, you know, that was a a one-year kind of thing that these guys aren't going to be able to follow up on it. They're good kids. I see how they work every day. It's worked for them in the past. I don't see any reason that they can do this one year and then all of a sudden have the league adjust that drastically that they're not able to do it again. I mean, they put in an incredible amount of time. Um, they've, they've got the right kind of makeup for this thing. You know, Reynolds especially, there's a lot of talk about, you know, this kid's got a slow heartbeat or whatever. I take that to mean in a realistic sense. He's very good at, you know, keeping the, keeping the highs short, keeping the lows short. Just ha- has a real good feel on how to be an everyday pro. And I've seen it and I just, you know, I, I understand the people that might think that you know, those 2019 seasons are going to be aberrations. I just I just can't go there. And Josh Bell, another question in that category. He was so great early in the year, one of the best hitters in baseball. He was launching balls left and right into the Allegheny, or, well, I guess just right into the Allegheny. But he (laughs) was just a monster, and he hit 27 of his 37 homers in the first half of the season. And then the second half, he was basically a, a league average hitter again, worse really than he'd been in his previous full seasons. So... Is he that first half guy? Can he be that again for a full season? Or was that just this burst of his power potential that we might not see again? Yeah, I mean, I think it it might be a little bit lofty to expect what we saw out of Josh Bell in May and June. I mean, that was just insane stuff. But, you know, is he the guy that showed up in the second half? No, I don't think that's realistic either. I think he was a little bit bagged up. You saw his year cut short. I know his timing was screwed up as a result of a couple things and he never really got it back, started getting pitched a little bit differently. 
but I think Josh Bell is somewhere in the middle there, probably skewing more towards the May and June version of himself. I don't have any concerns about Josh Bell's offense. Um, any concerns that I have at this point about Josh Bell or his defense and his ability to throw, which he worked on this offseason, but he's so consistent with what he does. He puts so much time in. Uh, the power is there. It's just a matter of getting everything synced up with his swing. He does have a couple moving parts to it. But I, I see Bell as absolutely being able to replicate a 30-homer season, probably flirt with a 40-homer season. He should have some more protection in the lineup, something he definitely lacked in the second half of last year. I think Gregory Polanco is a huge key for him, and so far Polanco has looked really good in the spring. If they can get Polanco healthy and productive in that number five spot, I think Bell will get some better pitches to hit. And, you know, at that point, it's just about his plate discipline and not, you know, swinging out of his shoes or, or his eyes getting too big, anything like that that we saw last year. I've kind year. of gotten to the point where I don't, uh, I'm sad to say, I don't really expect good things from Chris Archer if things just keep going without a big change. My, my sense is that, the Pirates saw something in the second half last year when uh, the rest of us had quit paying attention that they liked. Um, so maybe there's hope there. But, you know, it's been a while for Archer, and it's been a couple of organizations for Archer since he has been, um, you know, a, a, to- a top-of-the-rotation pitcher or, or even looked like he would be one. So it does he need—is he to the point now where it's, like, big new plan time for him, or is it just still tinkering and trying to find it time for him? Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe both, I guess, is how I would answer that. Like, I think it's big new plan time, but I also think the big new plan is his old plan. A lot of what the Pirates did, you know, with Tyler Glass now and, and, you know, even what they did and didn't do with Garrett Cole sort of applies to Chris Archer. I mean, you go out and get a guy who's a strikeout pitcher, right? Like, he's a four-seam slider guy, and all of a sudden you have him throwing two-seamers, and you have him, you know, trying to accentuate his changeup and, like, it just isn't the Chris Archer that had those years that we're talking about in Tampa Bay. And so I'll be curious to see what this new regime does with him. And everything we've seen out of Oscar Marine and, and their new pitching preparedness program and with what Charrington and Shelton have done and all that stuff has, has been a you know intelligent look at how guys should be utilized. They're not trying to factory make pitchers anymore. And, you know, they need to let Chris Archer be that guy. You know, that no, he's not throwing as hard as he did in 2013, 2014 or something like that. But I mean, his fastball is still going to sit at about 94. That should be good enough to get out. It's like his slider is still a quality pitch. It's one of the best of its kind. You know, he has the stuff to be a, a very good major league starter. It's just they need to be able to put it all together. And I think when Archer was healthy during the second half of the season last year, we saw that. You know, he came out of the All-Star break, and I remember doing an interview with him where, you know, he was just sort of defiantly saying, like, I can't be like they want me to be. You know, he didn't. He said they didn't explicitly, like, force him to do anything. It's just sort of, like, systemic, right? Like, you're, you're forced to be what everyone else is, and he can't do that. That's not him, and he doesn't need to pitch to contact. He needs to pitch for strikeouts and be a little bit more free. And, you know, so I'll be interested to see what, what this new regime gets him. You know, I don't know if I have a, a prediction or a feel any which way, but I do think that he stands a better shot of being the guy he was in Tampa during sort of his glory years than he did in his previous year and a half in Pittsburgh just because they weren't using him right. 
And before we let you go, I want to ask about one of the most fascinating prospects in the game, one of the Pirates' top prospects, O'Neill Cruz, who is a 6'7 shortstop, at least for now, and the only player taller than 6'5 who has ever played shortstop is Joel Guzman, who played three games there for the Devil Rays in 2007. So if Cruz can stick at shortstop, he would certainly be breaking the mold and he's been a a polarizing player because of his build and yet for now at least it seems like there's still a path for him there so what is the eta for him and are opinions mixed on where he'll actually end up yeah i i don't know if they're mixed but i also don't know if they're formulated i don't know if the pirates have their mind made up on whether he's going to stick at shortstop and i think part of that relates to the other half of your question in that there's a lot of growing to do for O'Neill Cruz. Hopefully not physically at this point. <laughs> no, 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 not physically. It, I, I can't imagine he uh, needs to buy any more shoes or beds or, you know, anything like that. But like he has flashes where he looks absolutely incredible. And you say, oh, my goodness, this guy's going to break the mold. He's going to be a six foot seven, seven shortstop. Look how funny he is to watch. And then he has other times where, you know, you think, oh, my goodness his feet look slow and and he's getting slow reads on balls and like his small area quickness just isn't what it should be even at the plate you know I watched him today in a spring training game you know sort of get handcuffed in this like awkward swing and it just kind of looked like he got out of his plan and got fooled and and we've seen you know just sort of yo-yo back and forth on on this incredible opposite field power and then just a bad swing and miss. So I, I still think we're in the refinement stages with him. I expect him to start in double A again this year. And it, it's just going to kind of depend on his maturity. And, and for the time being, there's not really a huge opportunity for him at short, although I would imagine that if he's able to sort of smooth out the rough spots and, you know, grow into what he could be, if he does that in a hurry, they have to find a place for him. But to me, if I have to make a prediction any which way, I think he winds up in the outfield. I think he maybe winds up as like a Gregory Polanco succession plan. Um, I don't know if I see him playing first, but um, I could, you know, it, it, I would at least bet my money with little of it I have that he's in the outfield as opposed to short at this point. All right. I do have to ask you to make one more prediction because we end these segments by asking our guests for a win total call. So how many wins do you foresee for the Pirates in 2020? I'm going to say the Pirates win 81 games. I've, you know, I, I see them around a 500 team, so I'll, I'll put them right there on the nose. All right. You can follow Jason on Twitter at jmackiepg. You can often hear him on the radio in Pittsburgh, and you can read him in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Thank you very much for your time, Jason. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Take care. Well, if the Pirates were to win 81 games this season, which, to be clear, I am not quite as confident about as Jason seems to be, it could be because 23-year-old rookie starter and team top prospect Mitch Keller had a good full season. I wrote about Keller last week at The Ringer. I will link to that piece on the show page and in the Facebook group. But basically, I wanted to talk to him because he seemed to have extraordinarily terrible luck last season. Again, he had a 475 batting average on balls in play in his 48 innings pitched and 11 starts for the Pirates. 
That is a full 50 points higher than any pitcher has ever had in a season of 40 or more innings pitched. He also had the biggest gap on record between his batting average allowed and his expected batting average allowed, according to StatCast. He had one of the largest gaps ever between his ERA, which was 7.13, and his FIP, which was 3.19. So almost a four-run gap between what his ERA said he was and what FIP said he should have been. And he struck out 12 batters per nine innings without walking a ton. So he had great peripherals, but terrible old-school stats, one in five record, and the seven-plus ERA. And I was fascinated by what it would be like to be a player with those stats, especially as a highly touted prospect and a rookie who was trying to cope with these bad bounces and bloopers and bleeders in his first exposure to the big leagues. So I spoke to Keller last month, and I'm about to play most of that conversation for you. And I think maybe you will detect some of what Jason was just saying about how the old Pirates regime didn't really support the players with the information that they needed. So here's a quick conversation between me and Mitch Keller. This is Mitch Keller. Hey, Mitch. How are you? Thanks for calling. Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I appreciate your making a little time. So yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about your last season, and it stood out to me. It just seemed like mm-hmm. so many of the things that you could control went really well. The strikeouts and everything, clearly you were missing bats, and some of the stats were really impressive. But then it, it certainly yeah. seems like, from afar at least, that none of the, the bounces were going your way, and you know <laughs> everything yeah. was kind of falling in. And I'm curious about what that was like for you, because you know, on the one hand, Clearly, you've got good stuff and and you're missing bats, but on the other hand, just all these things are are going wrong and you're a rookie and I wonder what that was like at the time. Yeah, um, it was definitely tough because you see all the good numbers, like I would strike out seven or eight a game and usually when you see that, you're like, oh, must have thrown a really good game and then you look at the scoreboard (laughs) and I give up like six hits and like three or four runs. And yeah, it's just like, how, how does that happen? Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's really tough to try and wrap your mind around it. <laughs> yeah. And I guess it sort of started right away, right? I mean, your first game, you had that rough first inning and I know you, you settled down after that, but, um, you know, you, yeah. you don't even get to enjoy, here's my first inning on a major league mound because <laughs> right away things are, are getting yeah. away from you a little bit. Do you remember that time or is it all just kind of a blur that, that outing? Um, no, I like, First thing, I mean, first batter, I had him. I, the first two pitches I ever threw in the big leagues were two strikes. Like, so I was 0 2 on the first guy, and then mm-hmm. I threw another really good fastball, and I didn't get the call from the umpire. Yeah. I remember that, and I think it went to either 1 2 or a 2 2 count, and then I ended up walking the guy. So, like, just looking back, if I, you know, maybe execute a little bit like that first batter and get the first out, maybe none of that even happens, and I have a totally different uh, debut, but. Yeah, just the little things like a borderline ball or strike call. Um, and then I think even that inning, they had an infield hit. And then, yeah, Sonny Gray had one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sonny Gray had an infield hit. And then I give up a grand slam. And it's just like, how does this happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, this is crazy. As it's happening, does it get in your head so that it then makes it more difficult to keep doing what you should be doing? Because you're thinking, how did that fall in or, you know, how did that stay fair or whatever? Yeah, um, it does make it tough because when when you have things going wrong on the field, um, you're always looking at something like, what do I need to change or what do I need to be better at here? 
Um, and then you have my strikeouts and everything that's good. And it's like, well, that's really good. So if we change something here, maybe right. those will go down or go away. But that's just where it's really tough. So you have to take a deeper dive on what was actually going on. And yeah, so that's, it's, it's really hard <laughs> mentally yeah. to be able to stay stay positive through that all yeah i can imagine were there any other outings that stand out to you or or even you know hits or something where you were just like you got to be kidding me <laughs> how is this happening at any point in that season uh, i think it was my second start in atlanta there was a few uh that right in that first inning i think i gave up three in the first it was just like a, a hit the other way through our shift and then a hit another one like I think it was Austin Riley. I faced him in AAA and throwing the same pitch. And I think he was just really late on my fastball and he hit it the opposite way and it hit off the wall, which was like, I thought it was just a pop fly. And then it ends up hitting off the wall and, you know, there's two runs there. And then the next guy, I don't remember exactly what the next guy did, but ended up giving up three. And it was just, it just felt like I could have, got out of that inning without anything happening right yeah you know because you hadn't had that kind of terrible look in in the minors i, I guess you know it wasn't like you were cursed or, or something so are you able to yeah. put it in perspective and say well everyone has bad hops or whatever and breaks go one way or another and this just happens to be a really lousy run of that yeah i think uh i try not to get too down on those numbers last year because because of that i always think like you know, any any time in baseball, someone's going to get unlucky. Um, it just just have a bad break here and there. Um, mm-hmm. But it seemed as if <laughs> I was getting a little bit more than usual. Yeah. So hopefully this year it'll taper out a little bit. Yeah. And get some good breaks, some <laughs> good hops on my end. Right. And I know, it. you know, in baseball, there is such a thing as good luck and, and bad luck. That's a real thing. But I know that there's yeah. always a reluctance to, you know, make excuses or, or say I'm getting unlucky. I, I mean, I guess Trevor Bauer does it, but a lot of people don't want to <laughs> want to say that. And, I, you know, I'm sure especially when you're a rookie and you're just making your debut and everything, you, you don't want to show up and be like, well, it's, you know, everything's going against me or something. So did you have to, yeah. how did you balance? I guess talking about it and you know if you're talking to reporters or, or whatever you want to point out I guess the positive things you're doing but also don't want to sound like you're mm-hmm. you know blaming it on other people or whatever yeah yeah even even like now still looking back on that year like um, with with our new coaching staff and everything we're going through the numbers and it's kind of like okay where could you have been better I think my fast I was throwing a lot of fastballs so that might have uh-huh. Um, led to a lot of the hitters knowing or like sitting on my fastball and just really gearing up for it. And that mm-hmm. might've made it easier to hit me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, you look at my weak contact or right. my exit velo velocity and it's below average. Right. Yeah. It's really average. So it's, so it's tough there. Um, but yeah, I think it comes down to like pitch execution. Sometimes, you know, I could be probably, I could not probably, I could be better, um, with my fastball location and when I am throwing my fastball. And I think that led to some of the higher averages on that with the batted balls and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, you, you have to take every number with a grain of, grain of salt because you look at the, the numbers and you see that I have a high, like 
guys were hitting 475 when the ball was put in play. Right, yeah. <laughs> okay, some of that's unlucky. Some of that's actually me not executing. And then how much of it is unlucky? How much of it is that? So it's really hard to look at. But yeah, it definitely comes up in conversation because I'm still, I'm still a rookie and it's still tough to talk about because I don't want to be right saying like, oh, I'm unlucky when mm-hmm. I when I was, but it's more than just that too. Yeah, right. Yeah, that number is the the one that first caught my eye, that 475, because you know, I, yeah. I think we we have a good sense now that that number is typically not really directly controlled by the pitcher you know uh, the best pitcher in baseball might have a, a 300 BABIP it's just you know that the good pitchers get strikeouts and they limit walks and that sort of thing and so yeah that number is you know I mean no pitcher has ever had in as many innings as you threw a batting average on balls and play that high and so when you look yeah, at I know. <laughs> yeah I'm sure you know as well as anyone but you know when you look at that and then the the weak contact it's hard to square that because it's like well clearly he was missing bats and people weren't even hitting the ball that hard and yet somehow this is happening yeah. and so you wonder like well is it just occasionally he'll make a mistake and leave one out over the middle or something and so like it's statistically speaking yeah. it's hard to figure and I, I guess probably was for you too yeah and it still is <laughs> just it's almost like this year like I feel like I could just lob a ball in there and not have as high as a yeah. bit. Like just right. the positioning of everybody on the field was like, it shouldn't, that shouldn't happen. Like you shouldn't <laughs> have a, that high of a bit no matter what. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, position players come in and pitch and, and they don't have one <laughs> that high and you know, they don't exactly. And so. they're lobbing the ball in there. Right. And I'm, <laughs> throwing it. I'm trying to get everybody out. And they're just lobbing it. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of frustrating, but yeah, you just try and find something to work on with that and trying to get it better as much as I can on my end. So I would look at the the fastball usage and the command of it, and I'm trying to get better at that. So hopefully it will lower it in, in a sense that way. Yeah, I guess the nice thing is that, you know, decades ago, all anyone would have seen is the 7 ERA, and now no yep. one really, I mean, you know, teams and people who know what they're doing aren't really relying on ERA, and you're looking at the quality of contact and the quality of pitches and all of that, and that kind of tells the mm-hmm. true story. So I guess it's it's nice that this, if it had to happen to you, at least it happened to you now when you can kind of look and, and see that there's more to the story than just the runs allowed. Yeah, it's the it's huge it's honestly huge for me just to keep my confidence up because i didn't even know like this was a thing and, or like yeah I, f- I felt like i was having some tough breaks but if you really look at it yeah i i was and just um to have these numbers to back me up on like the fip and yeah the expected batting average and all that good stuff um yeah i mean it's it's good to know that people are taking a deeper dive on what actually happened right because if you just look at the seven era i mean that's pretty alarming yeah it's like <laughs> what the hell's going on and it might i might not ever get another chance at it you know just right. because yeah. of how bad that was but the other n- numbers are kind of saving saving me there so you weren't really someone who was very into the advanced stats until this happened and and you kind of <laughs> became no. aware of them no i wasn't at all i was i honestly started looking at it i think it was in san francisco they had it on the scoreboard like fip and i saw someone's and they're i don't even remember who was pitching but i think it was uh musgrove honestly was pitching and i saw it and mm-hmm. i wanted to look it up to see like where 
like what that was like is his number good because i don't even know what that means that means or anything like that and i looked his up and then i looked up what it meant and i looked mine up and i was like damn i'm like above average <laughs> yeah. on mine i'm like i'm like wow i have the really good ones but how or why <laughs> right <laughs> it just doesn't add up so who did you go to to learn about that stuff i honest i just went online i went on and searched like x FIP and expected FIP and FIP and I just started reading about it and got a better understanding and then um, I just kind of kept that information myself really I didn't really know what to do with it or and again I'm a rookie so I wasn't gonna say anything uh-huh I mean, I know it's a different uh, regime in there, different manager, different GM, everything. I'm surprised mm-hmm. that the team wasn't telling you about that stuff last year to try to keep your spirits up a little bit. No, yeah, the team and no one really last year hmm. um, said anything about it. But this, the meetings this year in spring training, we went over all my numbers and it was like, okay, you have really good numbers. Everything's pretty much better than average, mm-hmm. except for that ERA right. and... Um, we just looked at that and then it comes back to the usage and of pitches and how many times I'm throwing those a game and where they're going. So that's stuff I can control on my end is all that good stuff. So if that brings it down, then I'm going to try and do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When you were allowing runs, were you feeling like I need to change? I need to do something different. Or was the team trying to get you to do something different? Because in theory, if you kept doing what you were doing, eventually the the luck should even out and things should go better without even changing anything dramatically. But I, I guess, you know, there's always a temptation when you're out there giving up runs and the team is watching you giving up runs to say, well, we need to tinker. We need to do something. So, yeah. Um, it was mostly just talks of executing and command of the fastball in certain situations. And in most of it was, I think they wanted me to just keep going out there and trying to learn, learn the game on my own and, and figure some stuff out. But most, most of my side work, like on my bullpens and talks we would have last year were trying to get my, my pitches to be a little bit better and where I was locating them, but nothing really on the on the analytic side of where right, you're kind of getting a little unlucky. Were some of your teammates trying to reassure you or do you think they sensed no, I, that you I were honestly getting... don't even think they knew. I don't even think they knew, honestly. I still don't know if they know. Uh-huh. I'm sure that's got to be difficult as you're trying to establish your, yeah. your place in the clubhouse and you want to feel yeah, like you exactly. belong. Yep. Huh. And did talking to, to Matt, your your agent, I mean, did he try to give you some of these numbers or tell you this message? Or? Yeah, he did. Um, I think it was actually in San Francisco, too. He called me and told me all about it. Uh-huh. And that's, um, I was like, oh, well, I just, I really just honestly got into that, like, because I saw it on the scoreboard there. But yeah, just talking to him, he kind of told me and that made me feel a little bit better about myself and what I was doing. Because he was just like, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. You're going to get out eventually. Like, this can't keep happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I think it did. It got better in my last couple starts in yeah. the big leagues. Um, right. It, I think my last four or five were pretty decent, except for maybe one sprinkle in there that wasn't the best. Um, mm-hmm. He must have wanted the season to keep going <laughs> so you could kind of even it out. I mean, it yeah. must have been hard to, like, stop and say, I can't prove that this was a fluke for another six months or whatever how did you deal with that this winter um just knowing that what i was doing was was gonna or what i was doing is gonna 
help me if I keep doing what I was doing last year. I mean, those numbers are going to keep showing up. Um, not on the, like my number, like my strikeout numbers are going to keep coming. I'm going to keep getting guys out. Um, mm-hmm. The other stuff is just going to fall into place or hopefully it will start falling my way a little bit more or not even my way, just the normal way that it's supposed to. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, yeah, I was going to wish you better luck, but I mean, you'd almost yeah, have I, to, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> you'd have to have better luck. It couldn't be worse. So, um, yeah, thanks for talking about it. I'm sure it's not the easiest yeah. thing. So yeah, it's not, but it, it's good. Uh, it's good to know though that other people are seeing <laughs> yes. the real side. Yeah. You're not imagining it. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe I'll check in after hopefully things go a lot better this year. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks, Ben. All right, that will do it for today. Thank you for listening. It was nice to be away for a week, but it's also good to be back. I'll take this opportunity to note that the paperback edition of the MVP Machine, how baseball's new nonconformists are using data to build better players, will be coming out in less than a month. April 7th is the official pub date, and there is a hefty new afterword in the book, which does touch on the Twins and the Pirates and their differing trajectories when it comes to player development, as well as many other topics, including, as one might imagine, the use and Astros. So you can pre-order that now if you're so inclined. Maybe you missed the book the first time around, or you want it in softer, more convenient form with some new material. While I'm plugging and linking to things, the sister-slash-daughter site of Effectively Wild Banished to the Pen, which was started by and continues to be operated by Effectively Wild listeners, is running its own written team preview series in tandem with ours, as it always does. They have a bunch of team previews already up, so go check it out at banishedtothepen.com or click the link on the show page or in your podcast app you can support the podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks chad jobin bill brickley andy morris alex parker and james everwine thanks to all of you you can join our facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild you can rate review and subscribe to effectively wild on itunes and other podcast platforms keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter and we will be back with another episode a little later this week well, isn't it just my love?